Over the, the last couple of weeks, it's become noticeable that there is a change of season in the air. The sky is starting to, to darken a little earlier in the evening. The temperature is cooler at night, and indeed I feel it a little cooler than here this morning. You know, it's like, oh. You know, the leaves have started to yellow, some of them even to fall from the trees. No wonder meteorologists call the 1st of September the start of autumn, rather than waiting for the equinox later in the month. We too, in our preaching plan, are at a time of transition, a time of changing season. About to start our new programme next week, looking to new beginnings next week. And so this morning we come towards the end of thinking about dreams. The dreams we've heard over the summer uh, that we've encountered in the book of Daniel, in the story of Joseph, and the one we had last week where we heard of Gideon overhearing uh, a dream in the Midianites' camp, were all of a particular form. They had some movement of normal objects, or animals, or of people. And then something unusual happens. The sheaves of corn bend. The thin cows eat the fat cows. The tent is demolished by a barley loaf. All unusual happenings. But they're like silent visions without dialogue. And they need interpretation. God has given them in a particular time. And then sometimes we've had to wait for the recipient of the dream to be told what the dream actually means. How it moves the story of the people forward. Today's dream is of a different sort. It's more like the sort of dream that we see in the call of a prophet, where a man of God called to a divine purpose has the dream and speaks within the dream with the Lord, or hears words that encourage him or challenge him. And I say him because it quite often I think normally is a hymn in these. Think of the call of Isaiah, where the angel touches the prophet's lips with a coal. It's because he's been saying he can't speak. There's dialogue. And likewise, where Ezekiel eats a scroll of scripture that is as sweet as honey. The dreamer hears God speak. 
And like the prophets, the King Solomon declares his weakness and then there is a response to that. It is in experience in how to bring justice to the people that he says he needs, uh, or rather has and needs resolving. He calls himself young, a mere child he is, though actually uh, something more akin to, to 20 years old. Uh, he would have, in his culture, have been considered a man for a number of years. But compared to David, his father, who has been before him, and compared to his nine older brothers, Solomon is young. The previous chapter, 1 Kings 2, contains much bloodletting as Solomon makes firm his seat on the throne. It has revealed that the new king is already decisive. He knows how to resolve some difficulties. He can discern facts and say, this is what is going to happen. He can tell truth from lies, righteousness from wickedness. He wants to do the right thing, though. He needs to know how to bring peace to troubled situations. Not knowledge, but wisdom. And he needs wisdom. He might have been resolving those difficulties in his kingdom. But we see in our passage this morning that he's far from got it all sorted out. The opening of chapter 3 tells us in two distinct ways that Solomon is far from being on a good course. He is far from being a wise king in the shape that Israel needs as opposed to any other nation. Firstly, we hear that he has married the daughter of the Pharaoh. Now, this might sound a great idea. He's entered an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he's sealed that alliance with the marriage. A political marriage bringing peace and prosperity. It's a trade deal between the neighbours. Neighbours that have frequently been at war. And it's fair to say that he is not the first Israelite to marry someone who is not from Israel. The greatest example is, of course, Boaz, who married the Moabite Ruth. And so, in the bloodline of Solomon's father, David, there was a history of mixed race. But what was crucial in that story was that Ruth had earlier stated to Naomi, the mother of her first husband, your people 
will be my people. Your God will be my God. She had converted to the way of the Lord. She might have been from a different racial background. That is not of consequence. The significant thing was Ruth trusted in the Lord and was going to live the way of the Lord. So that although it's a Hebrew and Moabite marriage, although it's mixed grace in that sense, it's not of mixed faith. There is no indication that the Egyptian wife of Solomon had aligned herself to the Lord. They come from different backgrounds and they have different understandings and different influence. The second thing that we see all is not quite right with Solomon is that he is worshipping in the so-called high places. That's not high as in high church. It is geographically a place on the hill, a high place. But those high places were the places of Canaanite worship prior to the Israelites coming into the promised land. And there's a sign here that this is wrong in the use of the word except in verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. This is going against what David, his father, had shown him. It's going against the way of the Lord. These high places, the sites where the Canaanites worship their false gods. And we see that Solomon goes to the most important site at Gibeon, bringing a thousand burnt offerings. He is far from being God's way. He is far from being the right king that he needs to be. At times his faith uh, seems almost insincere. He's choosing to live almost like people do in a postmodern world that we have today. He's finding truths wherever he looks and bringing these together. He is not seeking the pure truth that comes from God. He's forgotten the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. And throughout his life, this will continue. As he marries repeatedly, taking many wives and many concubines, he allows their false gods to continue to be worshipped. And if you follow the story all the way through, you will see that he joins in that worship again. During his long reign, 
Solomon builds the temple to the Lord. And this is a great thing. But the lack of faithfulness to God's ways grows among the Israelites. It mars the end of his kingship. It becomes a disease among the Israelite people that continues in reign after reign following Solomon and leads eventually to the sacking of the temple, to the Babylonians coming in, and to the exile. And it takes that exile for God's people to rediscover the faith that they should have. In his offerings to other gods, Solomon is ignoring the Lord. But he is not ignored by God. Men and women may choose to take a pick-and-mix approach to faith. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm having lots of different tastes. They might turn their back on God, but God awaits their return. He is a loving God. He loves them, he loves us. He makes that love clear to us in the gift of Jesus who came not for those that had got it all right, but came for those that had lost their way. Which actually was everybody. And through him, through his perfect life and death, we can be forgiven of the sins and know eternal life. All through time, God wants people to come to his way and to seek the true path. And the God who loves Solomon comes to Solomon in a dream while he is in Gibeon, the place of false worship, and speaks to him saying, you know, what is it you want? What is it you're seeking when you go from place to place? What is it that your heart really needs? What is it as you dabble in other faith? He speaks to him. He challenges him to think of what he wants in life. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. This is not a pantomime genie's three wishes, nor is it even a single wish. It's not wish and it will be granted. It's, you know, what is it? It's a question, but there's not immediately a promise that it's going to be fulfilled. It's a question of what his hopes are. And his request for wisdom reveals that there is a wisdom already present. 
that's the case, isn't it? There's usually something in the background of what we're after. Tonight, when we meet uh, for something different, um, the passage will include um, the fruit of the Spirit, the things that we want to see grow. Um, But hopefully there's already something of love, peace, patience, kindness in our heart already. What we want to see grow is already there. It's the nurturing that needs to come. There is wisdom in Solomon already. There's been demonstration of that. But it's making the right decisions and pulling it into the right way. Seeing it nurtured and grow that he really needs. He asks for that discerning heart. And it's because of this request that it's something that will help others that the Lord responds saying, I will do what you have asked. It's because he is humble that he will get that wish fulfilled. He chooses something. And God says, what's more, I'm not just going to give you wisdom. I'm going to bless you in other ways too. Got to bless him in things that he's not asked for. Both riches and honour. So that there'll be no other king like him during his reign. And then in verse 14, and if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. There's something there saying, look, I'm giving you these blessings, but actually... you're not necessarily going to be walking my way. When we hope for something, when we wish for something, is that something that is for us and our family? Something that's of benefit purely to a small number that's directly related to us? Or is it something that we hope for that we want for others that we're not connected with when we dream of the future of our church are we seeking God's kingdom to grow or for our church to be seen greater those are two different things the benefit of God's kingdom or the benefit of, hmm, this is all right. This is all right for us, isn't it? The things that we say and do must be to the glory of God and not take him for granted. Solomon awakens, kind of, from his dream and realizes that it was a dream. 
But he doesn't dismiss it in the way that we might dismiss a dream when we wake up in the morning. He doesn't go, oh, well, that was a bit weird. And then go and get himself a bowl of cereal. Or go and brush his teeth or those sort of things. And forget the dream. No, he wakes up. At least briefly. And he wakes up, not just from the dream, but he goes from Gibeon back to Jerusalem. He goes from the place of false worship back to the Ark of the Covenant. There is a sense of wakening up in more ways than one going on here. He travels back and he brings offerings Offerings which gave glory to God and recognises that he, Solomon, the king, has done something wrong. As he makes his peace offerings. But there's one thing to say you repent and another thing to actually mean that you have repented It's one thing to sing the song that praises God and another thing to praise God with your heart. And as Solomon's life continues, we see that he says words at times, but he doesn't necessarily live it out. Is that true for us? Do we say words? Do we sing songs? Do we make promises that are not the promises that we really mean? May we, as we dream, become people who will act with righteousness and justice, seeking God's will and for his love to be poured out in this community of the fellowship of Jesus. People, do we seek that love to be poured out on those who are outside the doors? May we be people who dream and seek to live God's way and yearn for the kingdom of God to grow.